Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here, that you have gone before us, that you hold all things in your hands, that you have chosen to put your glory into us, that we have your spirit, that we have life. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be active in all of us. Pray that you would anoint my words, that I would glorify you and that your people would be built up. And I pray that your spirit would renew all of us, that we would have the perspective you have, and that we would rejoice in you in all things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second year in a row I've uh, been privileged to preach on New Year's Day, or close to New Year's Day. Uh, And it's always an interesting thing to preach on a a New Year's. I think being a a backup preacher, uh, you have a tendency to preach uh, New Year's more often than uh, normal, maybe. But uh, it's always interesting as I reflect on what it means to be starting a new year and what it means to be uh, looking ahead and behind and uh, try to figure out how do we engage this year. And uh, I have mixed feelings about uh, New Year's in general. On one hand, it's a great thing to have a, a time of healthy reflection, to take stock of our lives, to ask questions of our lives, to repent of things that we, we need to repent of, to seek to do better. And on the other, especially in the culture we live in, it tends to become this uh, weird mix of legalism, amnesia, pride, guilt, disappointment, and uh, probably another or several uh, emotions that get wrapped into this. As we often tend to say, well, this is the year. This is the year uh, where everything will be different, and finally I will... Uh, accomplish my resolution of 1987 to accomplish whatever it is. Um, uh, last year, you might remember uh, the Nordic track illustration, and uh, it always seems that lots of Nordic tracks sell on uh, uh, about this time, and then everybody sells them or gets rid of them uh, several months later. Well, this year, uh, I was reflecting on what to preach on, and I can't even explain completely why this text jumped out on, at me, but it it did. It's been on my mind a lot, and uh, as I've reflected on it, I think it's a text that calls us to have a divine perspective uh, on a fallen and broken world, on our own weaknesses, uh, on our circumstances that very often are not as we would like them to be, uh, and it calls us to persevere in the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, on one one hand, it would be better perhaps to start with the chapter before, and you might have noticed uh, in the reflection uh, at the beginning of the bulletin, I included the passage where Elijah prays to God, and God calls down fire miraculously, and Elijah, through the power of God, is triumphant, and he accomplishes what God had for him to do, and then he ends the drought by calling on, on God. He prays, and he outruns Ahab's chariot uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pick up in our text on the next day. Uh, Elijah is coming 
off of a tremendous triumph. And you'd think maybe he'd feel wonderful, that he would say, God has answered, and I am ready to do whatever you want, God. Uh, I've seen you conquer. And yes, Jezebel is calling for my death, but I know that you answered me in fire. I know that you are God. That doesn't happen. Instead, we have a text where Elijah comes off of a triumph, and instead of feeling empowered and joyful, he feels spent, fearful, empty. I'm sure confused, as some have pointed out. uh, He's fleeing because he's afraid to die. And then what does he say when he gets into the desert? He says, God, kill me now. I'm done. And uh, some scholars have said that that's a problem. I don't think so at all. And when you're that low, uh, I think very few of us have complete control and uh, complete clarity over our own emotions. And Elijah is just done in his own mind. Now, it's also helpful to reflect on his life. Uh, As I mentioned, he's come down off of this triumph, but his ministry in general has not been easy. If you go back uh, a bit, Elijah just sort of of shows up uh, in 1 Kings 17, and we learn that this guy named Elijah comes up, and he says to Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And Elijah spends the next several years being fed roadkill from ravens. And then when the brook dries up, uh, he gets to go live with a widow. Um, There's a great passage where the widow says, we've got enough food to eat one meal and then we're going to die. And Elijah says, well, give me that bread or that little biscuit you make first, and then God will provide for you. And, And she does. And they live on flour biscuits for several more years. But Elijah also is the first prophet, the first person to raise someone from the dead. Uh, Elisha is the only other prophet to do it. Jesus, of course, does it multiple times. But Elisha does that, and again, he calls down fire, outruns the chariot, but he receives this threat from Jezebel, and he is shaken. So what is... Elijah's problem. And the first way I'm going to look at this is what does Elijah think his problem is? And Elijah thinks that his problem is that he has failed and that he is alone and that it's all been for nothing and he can't do any more. Now, why does this happen? Uh, It's not because Elijah hasn't seen God's power in action. Nor is it necessarily that Elijah is a man who doesn't have strong faith. Uh, James will refer to Elijah praying in faith, and it didn't rain for three years because, or three and a half years because of Elijah's faith. But even, even those who have great faith are shaken sometimes. And here Elijah loses his perspective. And instead of focusing on who God is, he focuses on himself. 
And he focuses on the fact that he hasn't seen the kind of large-scale repentance and uh, triumph in that sense where Israel saw what God did and then said, Elijah, we're behind you. They did for a moment. But instead he hears much more loudly the threat from Jezebel. And so Elijah looks at himself and he decides to believe or brings himself to believe that he is the only one. And he believes this so strongly that as we're going to see in a moment, when God shows up, he says the exact same thing uh, that he said before God showed up in glory. That, that shows us that, uh, that he's pretty low. Now, what does Elijah do about it? Now, Elijah, again, perceives that he is alone and that he's failed. And so he doesn't just get to safety. If he had just been concerned about safety, he would have gotten to Jerusalem and he would have been fine. Uh, Jerusalem at this time uh, was not a perfect kingdom, but uh, they had one of the good kings. And he could have said, look, I'm fleeing from Jezebel, uh, King Jehoshaphat. I'd like asylum. And things would have been fine. But Elijah, who I think was a very intense person, uh, gets to Judah and then goes off into the desert by himself. And again, he, he says, God, I'm done. I'm the only one left. I'm a failure. Take my life. Uh, now, God does something wonderful there, too, and and helps him along. But before we get to that, uh, after he eats this bread uh, and drinks the water, uh, and by the way, I think someone should stop marketing Ezekiel bread and market Elijah bread. Um, but after he does this, he makes a journey to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Those of you who know your geography know that uh, Mount Carmel is up here, Beersheba is here, and Mount Sinai is like down here uh, somewhere in uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula, I think Yemen or Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're not exactly sure where ancient Mount Sinai was, and so the best I can do is give you an approximation that Elijah goes about 200 to 300 miles on foot, uh, which is somewhere in the ballpark of walking from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, or if you're from the East Coast, from Boston to New York. Uh, It's a long journey. He does it by himself. He doesn't eat for 40 days, which should catch our attention. One, because Israel wandered for 40 days, or for 40 years in the wilderness. Another, because later, of course, Jesus does the same thing and is also ministered to by angels. But Elijah is going back to the beginning, where God first gave the law to Israel and made Israel into a nation. He's going back to Mount Sinai. And it's fascinating to me that God helps Elijah in this. 
One of the things I find so amazing about this text is the grace that God shows to whiny, uh, miserable, self-pitying Elijah. He doesn't say, quit whining when he's in the desert. Get up, go back, you'll be fine. Could have. He also could have said, quit whining, and then zapped him. And uh, that probably would have been fine for God to do. Uh, But instead, God sends an angel. And then later in the text, it says the angel of the Lord. It may have been God himself who comes and says to Elijah, eat a second time. The journey's too much for you. Uh, But he doesn't turn him around and say, you need to go back. I would have. uh, I would have sent him back. God doesn't. So if Elijah thinks his problem is that he's alone and he's failed, what is the real problem here? And as I've alluded to, the, the problem seems to be that Elijah has shifted his perspective. He's lost his sight of God and his glory, and he is focused on his own situation and becomes completely centered on himself. Uh, so centered that his problem is actually worse than he thinks it is. Uh, in, it, in his own mind, uh, he's the only one. Well, we know from the chapters before that uh, Elijah wasn't the only one. He ran into a guy named Obadiah, uh, and Obadiah, a little bit afraid that uh, Elijah is going to tell Obadiah, I'm going to be there, I'll meet with Ahab, and then the Spirit of God will take Elijah away in a whirlwind, and Obadiah will be left in front of the king, and Obadiah will be on the line. And But in that time, Obadiah says, why are you telling me to talk to Ahab and tell him where you are? Ahab's going to kill me. Don't you remember how I saved a hundred of the prophets? Uh, now, I know it's still Christmas break, but one plus one hundred is a hundred and one. There are a hundred and one prophets that Elijah knows about. To say nothing of the ones he doesn't know about or the worshipers of God in Judah. Elijah is not the only prophet, the only believer left. But because he's become centered on himself, uh, he's become blind, and he's forgotten, and he's focused only on his own perception of what's going on. And so when God says to him, why are you here? We get this in verses 9 and 10. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responds, I have been very jealous or very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So the first problem Elijah has is he's so centered on himself, he loses perspective. Uh, I was listening to another 
uh, sermon uh, by Alistair Begg on this uh, passage, and I encourage you to listen to him. And I know that's sort of like cheating to uh, listen to someone else's sermon and then then preach on it, but it's like an it's like a commentary in in spoken form. So, uh, but uh, and hopefully I don't lose my thought. Uh, There I went and lost it. Okay, I'll come back to it. Um, So Elijah does this complaint, and he becomes focused completely on himself. And then there's the issue of what he does not perceive. So if he's able to perceive his own own problems, um, and now I remembered, Alistair Begg mentioned, he begins to see God through his circumstances, instead of seeing his circumstances through God, if that makes sense. So he's beginning to look at himself, he looks at things, and then through that he looks to God and says, you, where are you, what are you doing? Um, I'm all alone, and I'm a failure. But then there's the issue of what Elijah does not perceive, and he does not perceive that God is still at work. He forgets about the day before when God answered by fire. He forgets about the 101 prophets. He forgets about the three years, three and a half years where it didn't rain because of his prayer. And then we have one of the amazing times where God shows up. Uh, And in our text, uh, we read in verses 11 and 12, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, or broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. In Hebrew, uh, literally a crushed sound. And a professor of mine actually argued that it should be a crushing sound, that God doesn't show up in a still, small voice. He shows up as on Mount Sinai in a roar. And I I don't know which one is right, uh, but it it wouldn't surprise me either way. Uh, God sometimes speaks to us quietly. He sometimes speaks in power. Either way... That should have been all that God needed to do. Could have stopped with uh, the earthquake, and I, he should have gotten the message. At other times when God speaks, people are absolutely dumbfounded. If you compare Elijah's uh, response with Job, God shows up after Job has been complaining and crying out to God. And in Job 42, we read this, then, the Lord, or then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust 
and ashes. Elijah, though, has become so centered on his own perspective of things that when God shows up, doesn't change his response at all. And while on one hand I love Elijah's raw humanity, Elijah is a real guy uh, who has problems that I think I understand well. And uh, to be honest, I can, uh, I don't know that I would have had quite the stamina or um, zeal to walk 200, 300 miles by myself in the desert. But I understand that all of us sometimes have times where we, we see God in his greatness and then we forget. And on one hand, we can be too hard on Elijah and say, well, I would have done better. And on the other, we can be too easy on him and say, well, the poor guy's tired, which he is. Uh, But we see here, Elijah gives the same answer. And when you look at verse 14, you can look again at verse 10. And you will see that they are the same. God shows up in power and glory and speaks to Elijah. And Elijah repeats as if God didn't hear him the first time or God doesn't understand or or what have you. And at that point, again, I think it's remarkable that God didn't answer differently. Moses said, I don't want to go, and, and God said, who made your mouth? You're going. Uh, again, if it was me, I think I would have said, Elijah, do I need to give you another earthquake or throw you off of this cliff? Go back. But God is gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And the answer he receives is a gentle one. And there is an amazing amount of grace that God gives. That God was not done with Elijah. That God, uh, in a very ironic way, doesn't give Elijah what he asked for in the wilderness. Elijah said, take my life. Elijah doesn't get to die. Later on, God sends a chariot from heaven and takes him. One of only two people, Enoch being the other, who didn't experience death at all. Instead of punishing Elijah, God showed grace to him. And Elijah might have been done, but God was not. And he says, you're going to keep going. And I've got a few tasks for you. And his tasks are, you're going to go back, which how would you feel if you walked to New York from Boston? The answer you got is, I want you to go back the way you came. Uh, Okay. Uh, I want you to go back the way you came, and you're going to do some anointing. You're going to anoint a successor, Elisha, and you're going to anoint Jehu, and Hazel. 
Now we read in verses 17 and 18 part of what's going on here. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Might seem like a strange answer, but Elijah is afraid that he failed, and God is saying, I am not done. Those people that are trying to kill you are not going to get away with it. And I'm going to keep going with my purposes. And the kingdom of Israel and Judah is not gone yet. And I am still God. And uh, by the way, the only one he actually anoints himself is Elisha. Elisha goes on to anoint the others. Uh, But Elisha goes on to do twice the miracles of Elijah uh, and does really some amazing things. And so one of the answers Elijah receives is God's very presence. One is the message, I am not done. And as we reflect on the, the year past, I don't know if it was a good year or a bad year for you, probably a mix of both. But as we look forward, we can know for sure, for certain, that God is with us and that he is not done. And then there's the third part of the answer, which is, Elijah, you are not alone. There are 7,000 others. Not just 101. There are 7,000. And at times, we do maybe feel like we're the only ones who get it. Maybe where you work, maybe just in life in general, you might feel alone or feel that uh, you're the only one who gets what God is doing, or you're the only one who, uh, who cares. And God says, you're not alone, and I care, and there are others, and he's given us the church, and the church is a wonderful thing and a messy thing. But we are not alone. Now, how do we respond to all of this? One is to recognize grief and depression can cloud our judgment and skew our perspective. Uh, One of the other things Alistair Begg said that I loved was, when you're depressed and weary and tired, don't make big decisions. Don't make spiritual decisions. Uh, don't write letters to people and then send them off uh, by email. Uh, and I'm, I'm stealing that part from him totally. And I think he's right. When you're there, your perspective isn't very good. What should we do then? We should open our eyes and lift our eyes up to heaven. And we should look to Jesus. Hebrews 12 says this in the first few verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, we are called to look away from ourselves and away from our own circumstances, away from our own sins, away from our own trials, away from our own suffering, and turn our eyes to Jesus. And we are told that he is there, that he is king, and that he has not left us alone. Now what else should we do? One is to, to not be absorbed in self-pity. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. For, for some of you, this might be a year where you're thinking things are fine. Uh, uh, for others, you might be coming here weary and burdened and heavy, either at your own sin or at the things that are going on in your own life or the life of those you love or in the world in general. Jesus says, bring those to him. Come to me, all who are who labor and are heavy, who are weary and heavy laden. Now, as I said, Jesus, God, is not done. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will not let go of you. God is not finished. He has not left you alone. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly because of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Elijah, I suppose, received a similar answer. Not in quite the same words, but the power of God, the glory of God showed up. What is our response to be? To remember that we're not alone. To have the perspective of Christ, to look to him, and to remember that God's grace is sufficient. Uh, He knows what you're going through. He knows what you will go through. And he is working all things to the good of those who love him or who are called according to his purpose. He is not finished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us your glory. Lift up our eyes. Help us to focus.